sermon today is continuing in our study of Nehemiah, and it is, this one is entitled, Still the One. Let's have a prayer. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would send your spirit to take these words and make them alive, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierce us, and we'll be whole. Crush us, and make us bread for the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. How does a church that has experienced crisis, even decline, get turned around? and rebuilt. Well, there can be no easy one-size-fits-all answer because, well, because people, being people, are remarkably creative when it comes to digging ourselves into a hole. I will say, however, Church decline is never an accident. It's the result of a long process of, oh, neglect, poor judgment, self-deception, infighting, or just plain apathy. And you know, sometimes, I've found church folks just don't know Jesus. Now, we've been reading Nehemiah's diary about rebuilding the city of God. The same principles and issues that we've seen there apply equally to revitalizing a church. In both cases, you are essentially rebuilding people, rebuilding relationships, rebuilding commitment. To review, the obligatory review for those who are new with us or who don't remember what it was we were talking about last week, which is me part of the time. I do this for myself, of course. <laughs> to review, Nehemiah, bodyguard to the king of Persia, is called by God to rebuild the walls and gates of Jerusalem 140 years after it was smashed by the Babylonians. And he prays and waits and in God's timing, the door opens for him to be sent by the king of Persia to fulfill his calling. He must assess the work. He organizes volunteers. He resists opponents. He defends against attacks on his character. And he considers how to increase the population to ensure 
that the city can defend itself. And in the middle of this, his diary is interrupted with a section about the priest Ezra, who, we might say, in the meantime, is challenging the people to renew their commitment to God. You see, a renewed city needs renewed people. It's not just about numbers, but also about the faith commitment of the people who are there. There's a fundamental principle at work here. Spiritually lukewarm church members will model lukewarmness and will attract, if they attract anybody at all, lukewarm newcomers. Did you hear that? Spiritually lukewarm church members will model lukewarmness and will attract lukewarm newcomers. On the other hand, spiritually lively church members will model liveliness and will attract lively newcomers. Are you surprised by that? I certainly hope not. Now, Ezra's mission reveals three facets to spiritual renewal. We covered two of them last week. Let me review briefly, bring it back to mind. First of all, rediscover the Word of God. Rediscover the Word of God. God uses His Word in Scripture to open eyes and to stir hearts. Countless people have been transformed by reading or hearing something from the Bible, the right word at just the right moment. St. Augustine was brought to his knees by a single verse from Romans. Luther, Martin Luther was freed from his ceaseless nagging guilt while reading Galatians. This book, the Bible, is a unique vehicle for the present voice of the Holy Spirit. When we say that the, the Bible is inspired, it means God not only guided the thoughts of the authors and editors, but that he continues to inspire it to you and me as we hear it and read it. No spiritual renewal happens without the life-shaping power of the Word of God. Second, rediscover the rituals and ceremonies of the church, whether that's the Old Testament church in Israel or the New Testament church. It's all before God, part of one body. In Ezra's time, rediscover the festivals and rituals, the the ceremonies. In Ezra's time, it's the festival of booths that symbolically connects them to their ancestors who, who trekked across the Sinai Peninsula, living off of the providence of God, receiving the law, and being molded from a ragtag bunch of whiny individualists 
into a unified and determined people. We don't know any churches that need that, do we? You see, any church needing renewal has to rediscover their, their history, their traditions, their practices that have always defined them in the past, that connect them through, through the decades with one another, and, and then celebrate it together to relive how they have seen God at work, to retell the old stories, to laugh and weep and dance together. It melds us into a caring, joy-filled community, into a unity. Now we come to the third aspect of spiritual renewal among the people of God. At the end of the Feast of Booths, Ezra calls the solemn assembly and leads them in prayer. And now this is a, this is a fairly long passage. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you to bear with me as we read it. Because it's, we really can't just leave anything out. This is not one you want to just sample. It's in Nehemiah chapter 9, the verses 1 through 38. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And then those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth part of the day. That means about three hours. And for another fourth, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. And then uh, Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, uh, Buni, uh, Sherebiah, Bani, and Hanani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, uh, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and uh, Pethaniah, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Then Ezra said, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them. To all of them you give life. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him a covenant 
to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the distress of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted insolently against our ancestors. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day, and you divided the sea before them so that they passed through the sea on dry land, but you threw their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters." Moreover, you led them by day with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way in which they should go. You came down also upon Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known your holy Sabbath to them and gave them commandments and statutes and the law through your servant Moses. For their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And for their thirst, you brought water for them out of the rock. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you swore to give to them. But they and our ancestors acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and determined to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, ah, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and they had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud that led them in the way did not leave them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night that gave them light on the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so that they took possession of the land of King Sihon of Heshbron and the land of King Og of Basham. You multiplied their descendants like the stars of heaven and brought them into the land that you told their ancestors to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, 
and gave them into their hands with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they pleased. And they captured fortress cities and a rich land and took possession of houses filled with all sorts of goods, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them to, in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemy. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. Then in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your mercies, and you warned them to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances by the observance of which a person shall live. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you were patient with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you handed them over to the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love, do not treat lightly all the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings, our officials, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, and all your people, since the times of the kings of Assyria until today. You've been just in all that has come upon us, for you've dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our officials, our priests, and our ancestors have not kept your law or heeded the commandments and the warning that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and in the great goodness you bestowed on them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you and did not turn from their wicked works. Here we are, slaves to this day, slaves in the land that you gave to our ancestors to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They have power also over our bodies and over our livestock at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm agreement in writing 
and on that sealed document are inscribed the names of our officials, our Levites, and our priests. May God bless to us this reading. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now in this brief passage, Ezra summarizes the entire Old Testament from Genesis 1-1 up to this point. Now you might, you might laugh, okay, politely to yourself behind your mask. You might laugh when I call it brief, but it really is brief. I mean, in my Bible, it's 350 pages of history boiled down to one and a half pages of prayer. That to me is pretty brief. And I know you would rather I read Ezra's prayer than read the other 350 pages to get, get, so you get the same sense. <clears throat> the third aspect of renewing the people of God after recovering the power of the word of God and rekindling the traditions and rituals that celebrate what God has done, the third one is confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Ezra confesses the stubborn rebelliousness of their predecessors because, you see, they, the descendants, not only continue to suffer the consequences of the sins of previous generations, but have inherited their rebellious spirit and need God's transforming mercy just as much as they do. We inherit the sins of our forebears. Like it or not, we inherit the sins of our forebears. Now, I want you to notice the order of things here. Ezra moves from reading the word of God to celebrating, to confessing in sackcloth and ashes. Now, we tend to read that and just take it for granted because, well, it's the Word of God and, and the Bible is, always does things differently than we do. No, 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 no. We're supposed to notice when things seem a little out of order. That's a hint to us to sit up and take notice. You see... That's not the usual order of things as you and I or anybody else imagines them. We would expect, we would expect that the reading of God's word would inspire self-realization, conviction, and repentant grief. Wouldn't it? So we'd go from reading the word to a time of confession, brokenness and confession and repentance, and then only once the grief is resolved in confession and, and forgiveness, would, there then, would we then move on to celebration and rejoicing? I mean, even the folks in Ezra's day reacted the exact same way that you and I would. When they heard the reading and grieve, they, they grieved. But then they were told by Ezra and the Levites, no, 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 don't grieve. 
rejoice and celebrate the festival. And it's only after seven days of partying, that's what it was, seven days of reading the Bible and partying, only then are they called to a solemn assembly to confess their national sin and pray for God's mercy. Why on earth, or in heaven, do, does it happen in this order? Well, let me remind you, God's word is his covenant. It's his covenant. That means it's the covenant, his terms of the covenant, the history of the covenant, and the history of the covenant people. Whenever you're reading the Bible, you're reading a covenant and the history of a covenant. Now, a covenant, and we've touched on this before, but let me remind you, bring it back to mind. It's very important. A covenant is a binding agreement offered by someone with greater authority and power, a king or God, to those under his authority. And it's offered unilaterally, unilaterally. God offers the covenant. You cannot offer a covenant to God. You can't make a covenant with God and take the initiative because you have nothing to bargain with. It all belongs to him anyway already. So God has to offer the covenant. There are people, by the way, who who, come, who say, oh, well, they don't think God exists. They don't believe in God. Well, just pray for them. Because what that means is they have not experienced God. God has not yet come to them to offer them covenant. Once he does, they won't be able to say they don't believe in God anymore. So just pray that God will reveal himself to them and God will come to them to make his covenant with them. But God has to make the covenant and he offers his covenant, I will be your God, you be my people. I will defend you, you put your trust in me. I'll teach you how to live, you listen to and heed my guidance. And then there follow the terms and the conditions, the commandments and so forth. And finally, the serious consequences, when and if, okay, forget if, when we violate the covenant. Now, this kind of covenant is never conditional. God doesn't say, if you do thus and so, then I will be your God and bless you. That is, if you do right, then I will love you. That's the human way of doing things. We make our love, our faithfulness, our loyalty conditional upon what other people choose or do. God doesn't do that. Not least of which, by the way, because he already knows what you're going to choose and do. Just saying. Rather... God makes an unconditional covenant 
It's unilateral and it's unconditional. First, God spells out in a classic covenant form. He spells out what he has already done for you and what he continues to do for you, his benefactions. That is, the undeserved ways he's already watched out for you and provided for you and protected you. Why? Because he loved you and because he's chosen you. And then, the second part, in response to his goodness, it lists the things you should therefore want to do for him. God takes the initiative that is grace. His covenant spells out its implications for you and me. That is gratitude. Do you get that? He takes the initiative to, bring, to meet you and to bring his covenant. That is grace. It spells out the implications for how we live. That is gratitude. Now, when you hear God's covenant, just in the order of how it's laid out, a covenant is naturally laid out, the first appropriate response is joyful celebration. You know, it's, it's listing first all the things God has done for you, all the things God continues to do to look out for you. And what can you do but be grateful and celebrate? How wonderful that is God loves you. God wants to be your God. He didn't have to show up and offer a covenant, but he wants to be your God. He wants you to be his person. You're loved. You're wanted. God has provided for you in amazing ways and continues to do things in your life, things that you often aren't even aware of. And this should be remembered and celebrated. And then comes the ramifications of his goodness, and we realize how our forebears in the faith and we ourselves have failed him, have failed to live up to the measure of gratitude again and again. And that, then, after celebration, leads to confession, repentance, and covenant renewal. Do you see the flow of it? and why it flows that way, not just in the Bible, but in life. When you and I jump straight from the reading of the covenant to grieving our failings, we miss the heart of it all. That is, the goodness of God. How many, how many weeping sinners have walked the aisle because they heard of the threat of hell and the consequences of their sins, but they never knew first the grace and the goodness of God. They hear the word and all they can feel is fear and they respond in grief out of fear, 
but there's no gratitude for the goodness and the grace of God first. Now, we have a name for people like that. It's called backsliders. Believers who know only guilt and condemnation and fear and threat, they will not, they cannot stay believers long. Always start where God starts, and that is the goodness and the grace and the mercies of God. Now, as the Feast of Booths ends... The people are called together for a solemn assembly. This, in, in the order of the Feast of Booths, this, uh, this corresponds to the renewal in the covenant at the end of Deuteronomy, and then again at the end of the book of Joshua, as the people have taken the land, and then they're coming together to have a solemn assembly and renew their commitment now as a nation to God. And they come in ash-smeared burlap. It's a sign, a symbol of mourning, of loss and grief. It's the mark of someone who is so distraught they no longer care to bathe or dress, but can only literally grovel in the dust. Have you ever been so hurt, so wounded, so brokenhearted, all you wanted to do if you could was simply grovel in the dust. They then separate from the non-Jews among them, not in order to avoid any religious contamination, but simply because, I mean, after all, it is their own sin and the sin of their own ancestors that they're preparing to, to recite and repent of. You know, God didn't call the other nations into covenant, not yet. And they have not broken faith with God, not yet. Those outside the church have nothing to do with this. At this point, this is this is about God and us. This is between God and his people. See, renewal must start with the people of God. It must start with the people who make up the church. Now, the Levites who had up to this point been helping the people understand the old-fashioned Hebrew of the Old Testament, now lead them in a time of worship, which then segues into Ezra's prayer. By the way, just so to remind you, they started out with three hours of Bible reading, just saying, and then followed that up with three hours of worship. And then Ezra gets up and starts reciting the history of, of Israel. Now most of his prayer 
Most of his prayer rehearses the wonderful goodness of God. That is, all the things that God has done for his people again and again, all of his covenant blessings are just listed, just one after the other after the next, how, how God created heaven and earth, how he chose Abram and made a covenant with him, how he liberated the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery at the Red Sea, how he guided them by cloud and fire. He gave them laws to guide them through life. He fed them with manna and water from the rock. He provided for the people for 40 years and then led them triumphantly into the land of promise. And how God delivered them again and again and again from the hand of their enemies if they would only turn and cry out to him. These are the blessings that God gives, the core of his covenant and the core of who he is. It shows the heart of God. But there is a second thread that runs through this prayer. You, I assume you picked it up. The badness of man. You see, despite the wonders they saw, the Hebrews were rebellious, would not obey. Mm -mm. They agitated to return to Egypt to slavery. They cast an image of the golden calf and worshiped it. They murdered the prophets and committed blasphemies. Over and over and over, the kings and the princes and the people stiffened their neck and resisted the Lord. It was a tale of hard-headedness and even harder-heartedness. You have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. The contrast should, could not be sharper between the goodness of God and the badness of man. Now, throughout this sordid history of Israel, God, however, remains constant, constant. God fulfills his promises, for he is righteous, verse 8. He is a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's verse 17. In his great mercies, he did not forsake them in the wilderness. That's in verse 19. He hears the cries of his people according to his great mercies, and he sends them saviors when they're in bondage. That's verse 27. In his great mercies, he did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a great and merciful God. That's verse 31. In closing, Ezra confesses that the Lord is the great and mighty and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love, in verse 32. God remains constant and reliable, loving and merciful and committed to his people, that's you and me, 
no matter how disobedient and rebellious they might be. He never changes. He's still the one he was and always will be. The God of mercy and the covenant of grace. He remains constant through all the changes of time, all the upheavals of the world, all the failures and trials of the church, all the crises of his chosen one. Now, there are those who teach in the church today, very widespread, that God has made many covenants through the ages, different covenants, as he rather searches for ways to solve humanity's sin problem once and for all. And each covenant stands for a while, a dispensation it's called, until it proves ineffective and is replaced by a new covenant in a new dispensation. Which means, ultimately what it means is God has no idea what he's doing. He's desperately casting around, trying to find a solution to the dilemma of human disobedience and rebellion. You know, it's, he's, in this God as he's taught, without people realizing, they're seeing him as a very small God, trapped in time like you and me, unsure what the future holds and how to best manage the problem. This is not the God of the Bible. This is not the God of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's not the God of Jesus Christ. God is eternal. He's eternal. He is everlasting. He is a above and beyond time. He's behind time. He's before time. He knows the end from the beginning. He's equally present in every moment. <clears throat> he knew our problem with rebellion. He knew your problem with rebellion and disobedience even before he created human beings. And he did it anyway. He knew what it would cost him, the suffering and dying of his very son on the cross. But he did it anyway. He knew what would happen in Israel, knew what would happen in his church. He knew what would happen in KPC. He knew what would unfold in your very life and he did it anyway. When he comes and offers his covenant to Israel, to Abram, to Israel, to the church, to you, me, it is always the same covenant. Always the same covenant from the same God. It's a covenant of grace, a covenant of undeserved mercy. Because it was purchased and sealed before all time, 
by the death of his one perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, for our sake in the middle of time. God didn't wait until it was going to happen. He did it in the middle of time, and it works both. It, it works in both directions. It, like, it sends ripples or shock waves in every direction through time and beyond time. And each time Israel hardened its heart and stiffened its neck, each time a church stumbles and falters, each time you rebel or fail, the Father in heaven looks and sees that one dying form giving his life on a Roman gibbet, and he chooses mercy. Unearned, undeserved mercies. He was the one who kept covenant and steadfast love. He is still the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love. The mighty and awesome God, the Father of our Savior Jesus Christ, has called this church to a special purpose. But again and again, if we're honest, looking back, it's run after worldly goals of prideful fame or political influence or institutional greatness as the culture defines those things. And again and again, it's been brought low. That's God's mercies at work. Now, it wasn't just the pastors or leaders who did that to the church. Because you see, churches get the leaders they think they want. Leaders that echo the goals that the group as a group secretly harbor. It really has been a spirit of pride infecting the whole congregation. I hate to tell you that, but it's true. It's true. That's why you've been brought to where you are now, on purpose, in the mercies of God. Because you see, God wants, and he wants to create a humble and broken people to do the great things that he has planned. People who only want to be faithful and obedient in the moment, and who are glad to just leave all the results to God. God's going to do what God's going to do. Lord, what a blessing that you will let me contribute and be a part of it. And it's your problem. You take care of it. You do it. A renewed church needs what? Renewed people. A renewed church needs renewed people. Now, he is called, in conclusion, he's called each of you to a unique and special service, and he's willingly given up his very life to purchase you for 
himself. He wants to be your God and you to be his woman, his man, his person. He's already paid the price for you. And though you might squirm or even run away at times, he's right behind you and beside you and right in front of you with arms opened wide. He sees the hardships that you're facing. He sees your anxiety or your uncertainty. He sees the rebelliousness that's at the core of all of our hearts. And he calls you to turn to him once more and find rest. He's still the one faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Covenant and steadfast love to you, to you. And he always will. He always will. Let us pray. We come before you, Lord, people who have not always obeyed as we should, who have not always listened or been sensitive. Lord, we're just as much caught up in ego and fear or other issues as everybody else. And we confess that before you and ask that you would do something inside of us. You gave Israel your good spirit to instruct them. Lord, pour out your spirit upon each one of us and instruct us. Show us how and where we need to change. Even more, show us how to change. And above all, Lord, through your spirit working in us, help us to change and to become the yielded, humble, grateful servants that you're looking for and that you want to use as your vehicles of power and transformation in our families, in our homes, in our community, in our church, in our nation. And we know, Lord, no matter what we face, no matter what comes our way, you never change. And you're still the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And your mercies, your mercies are from everlasting to everlasting.